So would you join me in prayer before we dive into the Word? Father God, this morning uh, we venture into very serious uh, territory. We talk about very, very sensitive, sometimes very scary things with what we study today. But Holy Spirit, give us boldness as we set our eyes on the cross and the empty tomb. We lift our eyes to Christ this morning for our help and for our strength. God, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our ears that we would receive your word, that it would fall like seed on good soil, that it would take root and it would bear fruit in us. Let the outcome of our time together today be a purer faith, a more resolute faith, endurance, as we walk in trust and obedience to your word. Father God, thank you for the family together today as we have sung your word and prayed it and now as we put ourselves under it to study. Glorify yourself in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter five, verses one through 20 is where we're gonna spend our time today. Uh, Willful ignorance does not make bad things go away. If you ignore the warning signs, it doesn't mean that the bad thing will not happen. Uh, Like ignoring the oil light on your car. If you do that, it's going to go bad for you every time. Or if you fail to open the piece of mail that says final notice, that's not going to go well for you. Or if you don't smell the milk that pours out in lumps, that's not going to be good for you. You can't ignore that. If you visit a faith healer with a comb over, that's not going to end up good. A hundred percent failure. So just playing dumb doesn't remove us from danger. And so since, since I'm your pastor and I love you, I want to alert you to danger today. There's a spiritual target on your back and there is a serious and powerful enemy was actively scheming for your downfall. And since I'm your pastor and I love you, I also want to strengthen you with hope today. This enemy has been defeated by Jesus Christ, and in Christ you have more strength than you can imagine. Today we're going to study a passage of Scripture that does the same things for us that I've just done. It alerts us to hidden spiritual dangers from Satan and his demons, and it strengthens us with a demonstration of the ultimate spiritual authority of Jesus Christ. And I have a goal in mind for our study today. I think if we study this passage right, the outcome will be a blood earnestness in us about the reality of spiritual warfare, unshakable confidence in Jesus Christ, our deliverer and our savior, and an evangelistic witness by which we deliver people from the enemy. We do this right today. We're gonna believe in the reality of spiritual warfare. We're gonna trust in Jesus, our conquering king, 
And we're going to tell a story about the goodness of God to us. And in our story today that we're studying, I want to highlight for you three realities of Jesus at war. Jesus is in active combat this morning in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And it's an intense scene. So I want to show you three realities of Jesus at war. And I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They went across the lake. The they, that's Jesus and the disciples. Remember, they're in a boat. They've sailed across the Sea of Galilee. The end of chapter 4 tells us that they came upon a large storm, and Jesus calms the storm with his words. Remember that from last week? We're still in the midst of this scene. So Jesus and the disciples, chapter 5, verse 1, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat... The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Jesus is locked in battle The battle doesn't start here in chapter 5. It started way back in chapter 1. You remember the scene, Jesus baptized, and immediately the Spirit of God sends Jesus into the wilderness where he is locked in battle with Satan. And at multiple stops, as we've began to to get traction in Mark's gospel, Jesus is coming face-to-face with 
the manifestations of Satan, his demons and those who are possessed by him. This morning, I've got encouragement for you and seriousness as we focus on three realities of Jesus at war. If you're taking notes, the first reality is this. Jesus is fighting a real spiritual war. Verses 1 through 9, we have to get locked into this fact. Jesus is fighting a real spiritual war. Mark gives incredible time and detail to this story. Mark is often known for his brevity, Not a lack of detail in that brevity, but still brevity nonetheless. But here, he draws out the action. He draws out the details. He he puts us right there with Jesus. He gives us an intimate portrait of this man who's possessed by many demons. We're told that Jesus and the disciples have sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and they've landed in a region called the Gerasenes. Now, there's some scholarly debate about where this place exactly is. The the general area is known, but the exact town that would be nearby or closest to this, uh, there's some scholarly debate about it. Still, we know a few things about this region. One, we know it's a Gentile region. This is not Jewish territory, not by any measure. This is Gentile through and through. The primary detail that tips us off to this is the presence of pigs, no self-respecting Jewish person would be a pig farmer since the Old Testament teaches that pigs are unclean animals. But where you have pig farmers, you have Gentiles. Prior to this scene, this moment, Jesus' ministry has been done exclusively in Jewish territory, but now he expands. He's still in the same region, villages and towns around the Sea of Galilee, but now he's in a distinctly Gentile territory. We also know that this region belongs to a larger grouping of cities known as the Decapolis. It's referenced at the very end of our passage. Uh, The Decapolis was a group of ten cities that were grouped together because they shared common language and culture and location and political status. Uh, It might be helpful to think about the Decapolis in the same way we think about regions of Boston. So when we say South Shore... We have an idea of what that means. It's a geographical region, right? South Shore is distinct from North Shore. We know some of the towns that make up the South Shore, and we know towns that don't make it up. So when we think of South Shore, it's a specific region. Decapolis is kind of the same way. It's autonomous, independent cities, but they're in a common region and cooperated together for various purposes. So Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's in a region around or near the Decapolis. And when they get off the boat, Jesus and the disciples are met by this man with an evil spirit. In fact, it's not just one evil spirit. He has thousands, thousands of evil spirits. And this man has lived a horrible existence. Due to the evil spirits in this man, the townspeople have tried over and over to tie him up, to control him. But everything they use, he tears off. They've used chains, he tears off the chains. They shackle him in irons, he tears off the shackles. The demons in this man give him a grotesque superhuman strength. He's not under control of his faculties. Since the people can't control him either, they effectively exile him to a graveyard where he lives among tombs. 
And night and day you can hear the man screeching, yelling, wailing. And if you were to catch a glimpse of him, you'd find the man covered in wounds, self-inflicted wounds, because he cuts himself with rocks. And when we get to verse 6, we see even more evidence that this man's not in control of himself. He is a man under control. You see, when he falls at the feet of Jesus and when he speaks, he does not do so voluntarily. Every recorded word of this man in this story is the word of a demon. If you look throughout the story, the man does not have any words attributed to himself. We're told at the end of the story that he begs Jesus to get in the boat with him, but we're not given a direct quote from the man. We're also told that he told his story in the cities of the Decapolis, but again, we're not given a direct quote from the man. Every direct quote out of his mouth in this story comes from a demon. He does not speak voluntarily. So this man lives a tortured existence under the control of demons, exiled by people who might otherwise be there to help him. And he lives in the most spiritually unclean of environments, among tombs and among pigs. So what should you and I do with this account of demonic activity? That's the real question. What what do we do with this story? I want to give you three options for how we might respond to these stories, these accounts of demonic activity. One option is this. You might just choose not to believe it. You might choose just to ignore it. Many people, even Christians, choose not to believe that these stories are true accounts. Some people might assume that ancient people confused mental illness for demonic activity. Or you just might assume that things like this happened back then, but they don't happen now. There was sort of a shelf life on this type of demonic activity. Or you just might say, hey, it's, it's all allegorical. It, it, it's just a general reference to the evils of this world. The information that would lead one to this conclusion certainly doesn't come from Scripture. And if that's your stance this morning, to deny the realities of spiritual warfare, to deny the activities and the realities of Satan and his demons, I would urge you to appeal to Scripture to form your conclusion. In the Old Testament, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 32 of those who sacrificed to demons that were not God's. In Psalm 106 verse 37, we're told of people who sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. Demons are mentioned in the New Testament in 19 of its 27 books. Demons are not the product of hyperactive religious imagination, nor are they ancient descriptions for conditions for which we now have medical terms today. The Bible never questions the existence and the reality of demons. I don't think that's a viable option to ignore it altogether. Here's another option. A second option is what I might call, in, in the absence of a better name, demon deliverance ministry. Whereas option one denies the existence of demons and spiritual warfare and possession and things like that, this second option sees demons everywhere. It attributes to demons every ill, every sickness, every bit of brokenness, every challenge in our lives. 
in particular, this sort of extreme move to the other end of the spectrum attributes demons to specific sins. So a person can have a demon of lying or a demon of lust and so on, things like that. Now the information for this approach comes only loosely from the Bible. It comes more so from pop theology and bad theology found in so many fictional Christian novels. Frank Peretti makes for great, fascinating reading, but not great theology. It comes from preachers who get paid for making fantastic claims and staging fantastic scenes. It comes also, quite frankly, from Hollywood depictions of what a demon is and how a demon works and things like that. One of the key problems with this approach, with this demon deliverance model, is it fails to recognize the distinctions between what we might call situational evil and moral evil. Situational evil is that evil that we experience from outside sources. It's things beyond ourselves. And every place in the New Testament where we see Jesus casting out demons is in the context of situational evil. The demons act as external forces on people. The other type of evil is called moral evil. That's evil acts, deeds, thoughts, words that come from within us. Jesus never casts out a demon in a situation related to moral evil. Demon deliverance ministries would say demons are everywhere and responsible for everything. What Scripture shows us, though, is that when it comes to moral evil, I'm responsible. And the solution to that evil is not having a demon cast out of me. The biblical prescription is repentance, confession, prayer, the Word of God, the family of faith, patience. Those are the things that deliver me from Satan and his schemes when moral evil is the culprit. Our man here in Mark chapter 5 is not possessed because of some evil he did. It's not that he committed sin and that opened the door to the demons to come. We're just told he is possessed by demons as fact. It is given. It's just there. So the demon deliverance ministry model goes beyond Scripture and it says demons are everywhere, should be cast out of everyone all the time, and that's just not what the biblical record holds. Now this model, this approach, has many things that we might admire in it. It takes serious the power of prayer. It takes serious the deliverance power of Jesus Christ. There's many things in that approach that we would find admirable and we'd find common ground on. But then there are places where it goes beyond Scripture to a degree that, uh, that I would not be comfortable with, and you shouldn't be either. But there's a third option. Again, in absence of a a better name, we might call it a classic model or a biblical model when it comes to demonic activity, uh, possession, and spiritual warfare. What the classic model does is just plain and simple, believes the Word of God in its context when it speaks to the realities of Satan and demons. Satan is real. And he is a murderous monster. Satan and his demons are real and more influential than you might imagine. 
In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, Satan is called the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. Revelation chapter 12 goes on to say that the great dragon is making war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verse 44 tells us he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he is a liar and a murderer. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Satan is like a lion going around trying to devour Christians. In 1 John chapter 5, we're told the whole world lies under the evil one. He is a global, murderous liar. According to Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 31, Satan is the ruler of this world. He's the lying murderer behind abortion. He enjoyed victory in Ireland this weekend as those citizens voted to legalize the murder of unborn babies. He's the one who drives human sex trafficking. He's the inspiration behind every school shooting, every murder, every mass murder, every terrorist attack. He's responsible for the twisted thinking that has led to same-sex marriage. He has convinced our country that gender is a choice. He is the power that fattens the pockets of the rich and powerful while ignoring the weak and the poor. He drives the multi-billion dollar porn industry that rips souls to shreds and families apart. He cultivates racism all over the world. The great dragon devours people from every form of abuse and violence and wicked depravity. He hates your family. He hates your kids. He hates you. I believe the biblical record, and so should you, that we face a very real and terrifying and murderous enemy. And there is indeed such a thing as demonic possession, situations in which a biblical exorcism is required. My experience, which is very small, would tell me these situations are exceedingly rare, but nonetheless real. And the means of exorcism are not things of the Hollywood variety. The means of exorcism are prayer, faith, power of the Holy Spirit, patience under the sovereignty of God, a unified church in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, we don't need to live like practical atheists when it comes to spiritual warfare. Neither do we need to see a demon behind every bush attributing every challenge or illness to the work of demons. Those who deny demons have a low view of Scripture and that they take away from its clear message. And those who see demons everywhere also have a low view of Scripture and that they add to the Bible approaches that are decidedly unbiblical. The balanced solution is to acknowledge both the reality of the war and the certainty of its outcome and to claim the victory that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. I like the advice of a writer named John Bloom. He says, Our best protection against demons is less preoccupation with demons and more preoccupation with God. That's the answer.
Jesus is in a very real, very true spiritual war. Not a metaphor, not an allegory. He is fighting for souls. There's a second reality you need to see in this story about Jesus at war, and it is this. Jesus has all spiritual authority. Verses 10 through 13 the all-encompassing, infinite, omnipotent authority of Jesus Christ is on full display. Look at verse 10 with me. Let's read it again. The demons begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Let us go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I think it's important to notice that it's not the demons that drive the conversation. Jesus provokes this whole scene at the end of verse 8. Jesus prompts it by saying, come out of this man, you evil spirit. He doesn't wait for a request. He doesn't wait for the revolt from the demons. Jesus steps on the shore and gives the command, and this whole scene unfolds as a result. And Jesus doesn't pray for power in this moment. He has power. He doesn't seem to struggle under the weight of the job in front of Him. He doesn't use special words or incantations. The battle is over when He steps on the shore, and the demons know it. He commands them to leave. He asks for their name. They give him their name. And then he gives them permission to go into the pigs. And then the pigs run into the lake and drown. Do not mistake Jesus granting permission to the demons to go into the pigs as Jesus being merciful to the forces of Satan. I take Mark to be describing the destruction of the demons in this case. What that destruction looks like, I don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us specifically. It could be that these demons are bound in a way until their ultimate destruction. That makes sense to me. That seems to have biblical merit to it. But Mark doesn't give us the details about what happens post-drowning pigs. We just simply have a territory that is different as a result. Jesus... Every step in this story has ultimate spiritual authority. It is unsurpassed authority over every aspect of the spiritual realm. Jesus has cast out demons before and, it, and has not broken a sweat doing it. This situation is a little unique because there's a legion of demons. And again, Jesus does not break a sweat. It is not a hard thing for him to give the command and accomplish the goal that he's after here. And Jesus has all this spiritual authority. And what does He choose to do with it? Well, He chooses to invade enemy territory. This location, the Gerasenes, it's not the kind of place any self-respecting Jew would intentionally go. The tombs are unclean because touching a corpse left a person ceremonially unclean, according to Numbers chapter 19. Pigs are unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Gentiles are a bundle of uncleanliness. But Jesus isn't rendered impure by such contact. Rather, He turns defilement into purity and wholeness. Jesus, in His mercy to sufferers, goes straight to the pit of hell and delivers a person who is under the curse. 
Now, Jesus described this very scene in a parable back in chapter 3. Remember when he's going toe-to-toe with these Pharisees who are accusing him of being possessed by Satan? Jesus told a little parable about a strong man. Satan is the strong man in this story. And Jesus said, No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. That's Jesus. Remember the righteous robber invading enemy territory, stealing from Satan a life that he was devouring. And if you think Jesus invading the Gerasenes is impressive, just wait till he goes to Golgotha. When Jesus died on the cross, the great dragon thought he had won, but he is such a fool. Jesus conquered death once and for all. He rose again. He lives evermore. All spiritual authority is his and used for the salvation of souls. Satan is defeated and salvation is secured. Somebody say amen. Christian, do not fear Satan or his demons. Do not fear his lies, his temptations, his schemes against you. You belong to the one who binds thousands of demons with one little word. You sang it just a little bit ago. Do you believe it? You better believe it because it's true. You belong to the one who will destroy Satan once and for all when he's thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. Christ's spiritual authority ought to make a difference in your life here and now, present tense. Christ's authority ought to give you confidence in the unwavering security of your salvation. If you belong to Christ, you will never again belong to Satan. Your salvation will never be revoked, lost, taken away from you. You're not saved because you defeat sin. You're saved because Christ defeated sin. That's what your eternity hinges on. So if you've been set free from sin, brother and sister, you're free indeed. Christ's spiritual authority also should give you strength in your battle for your sanctification. How often have we acted as if sin is too powerful? But you belong to the conquering king. How can sin have a foothold in your life when it has been defeated by Jesus Christ? Christ's spiritual authority also should give you boldness in your witness. You know, the church has at times acted as if our job is to keep the pure things pure. And so the church has at times withdrawn from society. We've made statements about what we are against and then lamented the wrath to come on our neighbors. But how can we watch Jesus walk among the tombs and the pigs? How can we watch Jesus engage with this demon-possessed man and then justify a posture of disengagement with the world? We cannot. Brothers and sisters, the gospel has to go to hellish places in order to rescue people from hell. In 2014, two American citizens were working in the West African country of Liberia among people who were being ravaged by the Ebola virus. You may remember them. Their names were Dr. Kent Brantley and a nurse missionary named Nancy Wrightbull. Nancy Wrightbull's, well, one of her one of her sons, Jeremy, was a pastor in Wichita, Kansas, in my former town, when all these things were going down. And both Dr. Brantley and Nancy contracted the Ebola virus. You, rem- you remember 
There was so much talk about the two of them around that time. They took such heat from so many talking heads because they risked much for the kingdom of Christ and for the sake of, of people in Liberia who are made in the image of God and precious and deserving of doctors who will risk all for the sake of their healing and their well-being. Well, Dr. Brantley was interviewed after his recovery. Both Nancy and Kent, they, they, they recovered from their Ebola virus. And then Kent was interviewed after his recovery, and he said this. He said, people have asked me if my faith saved me from Ebola, as in a physical healing. In a very real way, it was my faith that got me Ebola. It was the living out of our faith that put us in a place that we were at very real risk of getting Ebola. And that changes my perspective on faith. It's not something that makes you safe. So yes, my faith put me at risk of Ebola, but it also is what I clung to at the most difficult times of my illness. Not faith that because I follow Jesus, I'm going to get well, I'm going to recover, but faith that says, I got this disease by following Jesus, so whether I live or die, I'm okay with that. And that brought a tremendous amount of peace. South Shore Baptist Church, let's follow Jesus to the tombs, to the swine, to the outcasts, to the unlovables. Let's just follow him next door and let the gospel do what the gospel does in the lives of people bound by Satan. Jesus has ultimate spiritual authority. One last reality of Jesus at war very quickly Jesus evokes a response. Verses 14 through 20, Jesus evokes a response. Two different responses are on display at the end of this story. First of all, those who tend the pigs, they go tell a story to the town folks. How do you think those guys felt about losing their herds? Not happy. They go tell the story. Townspeople come back. Look at verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. I love that detail. And what's their response? They were afraid. Interestingly enough, it's the same response of the disciples at the end of chapter 4 when Jesus calmed the storm. Those who had seen this told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. They saw clear evidence of the power of Jesus Christ, His authority, His willingness to heal, His mercy, His kindness, and all they can think about are pigs. Makes you wonder who's under the control of Satan in this story. Verse 17 is so sad. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Jesus, we love that you've done this thing, but look, we can't afford to lose these pigs. Take it someplace else. Some people will see miracles and they'll be hardened in their disbelief. Some people will hear parables and be further enraged against God. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Don't be that person today. 
you need this story to penetrate your hard heart. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I need you to see Him as your rescuer, your merciful Savior, the one who will take on hell to save you from sin, the one who is worthy of all of your trust and every moment of every day of your life to follow Him in joyful obedience. If you hear this story today, do not harden your heart. There's another way to respond. And the healed man shows us that. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The man asks to come with Jesus. Jesus says, nope, go and tell. That's what the man did. Verse 19, Jesus says, go and tell. Verse 20, the man went and told. It shows us that discipleship comes in so many shapes and sizes. Discipleship isn't defined just by being one of the 12 in the boat with Jesus. Discipleship is defined by trust in Christ and obedience to his word. The man obeyed. He went and told. He did exactly what Jesus commanded him to do. And this little scene played out in miniature in Mark chapter 5 is later going to be played out in a much grander way. It's recorded for us at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. And after the resurrection, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this to his disciples in a similar scene. He says, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on earth. We saw that at the end of Mark chapter 4 when he calms the storm and the sea with a word. We see his all encompassing authority over all creation. And his heavenly authority, we've seen on display this morning in Mark chapter 5 as he puts down demons of Satan who ravage this man. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Mark chapter 5 is the great commission in miniature. As Jesus has rescued this man from hell and set him on a mission to make the gospel known among so many people. And he does that. He goes throughout the Decapolis telling all that Jesus has done for him and the people are amazed question for you. Do you have a story to tell? Have you encountered the goodness of Jesus Christ? Do you have memories of His mercies to you? Then you've got a story to tell, my sister and my brother. So I want to give you a challenge this week. Here's your church homework. Today and tomorrow, today or tomorrow, I want you to sit down in a quiet place And I want you to spend some time making an inventory of how much the Lord has done for you and His mercy on you. Tomorrow's your deadline. Don't say, I'll get to it this week, because you won't. Get to it by tomorrow. And with pen and paper, your Bible open, or maybe with a keyboard in your hand, I want you to write down, take inventory. How has the Lord been good to me? How have I experienced the mercies of Jesus Christ? Make an inventory. And when you read through those things, I want you to begin to praise God at their memory. 
when you see His grace unfolding to you, how incredible His love has been to you, let that be a moment of worship and joy for you. But that's not the end of the assignment. Once you have done that, the rest of the assignment is this. Go and tell someone. Don't let your kitchen table be the only witness of this. You go tell someone. And don't wait for a door to open. You open that door. So someone's going to ask you at some point this week, how are you doing? There's your door. Man, I'm great. I've just been thinking this week about all the ways Jesus has been so good to me. And sister, you are off to the races. Brother, you've got a story to tell. That's your homework. Think on the mercies of Christ to you and share that. This week, share that. Let's come in here next Sunday with unbelievable stories of the power of the gospel as it's told. Your story, the one in which Jesus is the, is the, is the hero, that's the story that has to be told. So brother and sister, tell that story. We've covered a lot of heavy ground this morning. We've got this portrayal of Jesus at war, and, and it's a massive portrayal. Here's the things we've learned from this. Spiritual warfare is real. Christ has all spiritual authority, and it calls us to a faith response, one of trust, one of telling. That's what we have to do. I think the lessons of this story are summed up in the life of one of our great missionaries, a woman named Lottie Moon. If you don't know this name, you need to to write this name in permanent ink on your bathroom mirror. Lottie, L-O-T-T-I-E, Charlotte Lottie Moon. Born in 1840, died in 1912. If you were a part of the Heroes of the Faith Sunday School class this semester, you spend a Sunday with Lottie Moon, and you're better for it. Lottie Moon was a missionary pioneer. At the age of 33, she sets off for China. She's a small woman, only four foot, three inches tall, but she was a giant in Jesus Christ. And she paved the way for missionary service. Things that we take for granted today or we just think is normal, Lottie made it happen. She dressed like the Chinese people she lived among. She ate like them. She lived like them. She spoke like them. She didn't import Western practices into a Chinese setting. She lived as the Chinese, among the Chinese, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she had very little support in this endeavor. She would write letters back home to her Baptist brothers and sisters asking for financial support, asking for people support. She got very little of both. And she served through rebellions and wars and plagues and famine So every penny she had, she turned out to the people around her. And every morsel of food she had, she turned out to the people that she served. Finally, at the age of 72, her co-workers, noting her deteriorating health, were alarmed to find out that she only weighed 50 pounds. They put her on a ship for the States to get medical help, and she died en route. Lottie Moon starved to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ among Chinese people. Her time in China was tremendously difficult. She found so little support from sister congregations at home. But still, she wrote these words, I wish I had a thousand lives that I might give them to China. So how can a person live that way? How can a person die that way? 
those who have been delivered by Christ and who rest in his infinite authority can't live any other way. It's those who, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, triumph over the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Satan is defeated. Christ is victorious. And we have a story to tell. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we come to you in all humility, recognizing that all spiritual authority is yours. All might, all majesty, all glory, all strength, all of it belongs to you. And we are weak and finite and far too sure of ourselves and far too afraid of Satan. Dear God, lift our eyes to you. Give us a vision of you in all your power, in all your might, your supreme authority over every scheme that rages against your children. Lord God, would you deliver people today from the clutches of Satan, those who would turn to you in faith and trust you for their salvation. And Lord God, would you embolden your children to walk in the the finished victory of Jesus Christ at the cross, and to advance against the enemy to take back souls that belong to you. Let us live like this man in Mark chapter 5, having been set free and commanded to go and tell. Let us follow in those steps. Let the gospel rescue as it's told by your saved and delivered people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.